Our scripture reading today comes from Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 4, verses 1 through 8 and 11 through 16. Listen for the word of God. I therefore, the prisoner in the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, mother and father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. But each of us was given grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it is said, when he ascended on high, he made captivity itself a captive. He gave gifts to his people. The gifts he gave were that some would be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until all of us come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to maturity, to the measure of the full stature of Christ. We must no longer be children tossed to and fro and blown about by every wind of doctrine, by people's trickery, by their craftiness in deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we must grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by every ligament with which it is equipped, as each part is working properly, promotes the body's growth in building up itself in love. So I'd like to try something here this morning just for the fun of it. I want you to check a few things. So look into your partner's collar and see where was your shirt made? Or your shoes? Where do we have here? No, no, I mean it. <laughs> this is group participation. <laughs> Vietnam, China, Sri Lanka, India, China, Cambodia. So I decided to do this for myself every once in a while. It's, it's just a good practice, okay? So I checked the iPhone, which woke me up this morning, was of course made in China. We knew that. My suit was in Bangladesh. I heard that somewhere out there. My shoes... China. The coffee I drank this morning was from Ethiopia. My favorite mug was from Japan. And the mango that I ate with my cereal was from Mexico. And the car that brought me here was actually assembled in the U.S., but it was designed in the Far East in Japan, and the parts came from all over, and God alone knows where the oil that fueled it came from. So, before I ever arrived here this morning in worship, I have relied on the works and the graces of innumerable, countless strangers. 
from every imaginable place on Earth at any given moment in time, I am utterly dependent upon strangers, and I acknowledge it. Now, we tend to think of ourselves in this society as, you know, independent, self-sufficient, I can do it myself kind of people. And yet the reality is that you can't even get to worship on a given Sunday morning without the aid of numerous anonymous people from places you can't even pronounce the names of their countries sometimes. The truth is we are connected in ways that we can't even recognize and mostly don't bother to notice. But even if we don't always get the connection, we now have something called Nora. And you all know what Nora is, right? <laughs> I didn't either. I had to find this stuff out. Nora is a sophisticated data mining tool. It's a software program that was developed by a high school dropout and self-taught hacker named Jeff Jonas. And it stands for Non-Obvious Relationship Awareness. Okay, got that? Non-Obvious Relationship Awareness. And the program was originally created for the gambling community because it was used in casinos to see if whether that guy winning big on the blackjack table had perhaps the same phone number at some point as the guy who was dealing the cards, or if there were some non-obvious relationship which might lead to underhanded doings. It was sort of a, a security alert kind of program in the beginning that would show a connection where there were no other easily noticeable connections. So it shows common links, common names, variations, former addresses, belonging to common organizations, things like that. So I wouldn't be surprised if Nora were to run database on all of y'all, if they notice that in addition to being here in worship this morning, you also had a connection with, say, feeding the homeless in town or some other philanthropy or service group in the community. You can bet this has been an amazing aid for Homeland Security, but I think it would be kind of fun to run it on ourselves sometime, don't you? See, you know, who has common birthplaces, or who booked a hotel in the same place in Hawaii last year. I mean, wouldn't that be fun to know the ways in which we're connected that we never before imagined? I was just talking with a random guy yesterday at the hospital, and we both ended up having spent time living and working in Japan over the same years. Who knew? You know, two blonde kids out of... Anyway, it's silly stuff that we find out, but I think at a deeper level, this is precisely the kind of thing Paul was trying to talk about in his letter to the Ephesians. He was trying to get across to his listeners that we are, in fact, connected and interdependent in ways that we just don't often notice or bother to recognize. And it's not just because we all come to church together, because there are people going to church all over the place right now. 
at all hours, at all times, in all denominations, in all kinds of styles, in all kinds of ways of worship, it's because we claim allegiance to God through the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Okay? Now, unlike most of Paul's letters, this was not a letter to a church in trouble. Often Paul was writing because he had to settle a dispute, make a theological argument, put people on the right path, convince folks he had the true teaching. But here, Paul is offering some of his most beautiful prose, his reflections into the nature of this new entity called the church. It's considered one of the first most concise musing on the idea that all of these unrelated, disconnected, oddball individuals could somehow be held in a community that crossed cultures and countries and even religious backgrounds and gender divides in a way that had never taken place before. So I want you to remember, this was not the American church that Paul was writing to. This letter was being sent to a really segregated society, okay? The Romans had conquered the territory, and much of the geographical area was under their rule, but they allowed the different areas to have their distinctions, so the cultures still remained. Jews and Gentiles did not converse in public. Male and female did not sit in the same places. Slaves still lived in the back quarters and only showed up to serve the well-to-do. This was a very uh, divided community in daily life. Heritage, religion, social class, gender. They made all the boundaries that are still somewhat awkward to us here. But this was the people to whom Paul was writing. And he was talking about this movement, which was known as The Way back then. And for reasons that only Paul can attribute to the Holy Spirit and the call of Christ, all these strange people are being invited in. And somehow it worked. Now, this went against the grain of everything people would have grown up with and been taught and been enculturated into. This should not have worked. It should have been a hot mess. But Paul is sitting there in his break in prison, reflecting on the fact that somehow this was in fact what God intended as odd as it seemed. And he starts to be amazed at what God is making out of this motley crew of individuals into this unified movement of faith. And it's all built out of the love of God. Paul starts to point out that this is not something we can do on our own. We can't make unity by our self-determination. We can't make it happen by our own will. 
it is in fact a gift. It's a gift of God and we are called into the movement by grace and grace alone. And all we can really do is stand in awe and give thanks to God and accept it and respond in kind. But then in today's reading, Paul goes on to describe what this gift should look like once we've accepted it. And he suggests lowliness and meekness and patience as the common virtues of the people who respond. Now, I don't know, I've read the book of Acts. I don't think it always worked out quite that way. There were quite a few dissensions and in-house fighting back then. But nonetheless, it was Paul's hope that others would be able to identify these strange qualities in the people who were brought into this movement. Now, I could be wrong, but it sure seems to me that lowliness and meekness are not among the more highly prized attributes of our day and age. Can you imagine writing on your resume personal strengths, meek and humble? Probably not going to get you the job. Or someone on Tinder or Match.com saying, meek and lowly guy looking for a hot date. Not really admirable qualities in our society, and, and they weren't in the time of Paul either. In the Greek, any reference to the word for humble was always attached to an undesirable quality like slavish or cowering or cringing. These were not nice associations. And so why does Paul use them? Well, I think he used them in a very pointed way because it is really hard to build up a community when everybody is competing and, and fighting to be the top banana. And to be honest, it just wasn't the way in which Jesus worked, if you noticed. Yes, he put people in charge, but they were usually the most unlikely characters, not the ones the rest of us would have put in charge, okay? And since Jesus gets to be the head of the community, Paul writes, the rest of us are just going to have to fall in line. And that, to say the least, requires a little patience with ourselves and with each other, that third virtue Paul upholds. And Paul had the right to speak about these things because he is, after all, sitting in prison, not knowing if he'll be freed or flogged, or put to death, and so he probably knows a little bit about humility and meekness and patience. But I don't think he extols these virtues just to make for a good three-point sermon. He points to these qualities because it allows us to find our unity in our service to God. So you recall at the end of this very great, rich passage, Paul talks about the gifts we've been given as prophets and apostles and teachers and pastors and evangelists. Everybody gets their own calling. Everybody gets their own abilities to be used in service to building up Christ's body in the world. Yours is not yours is not yours. And without all the flowers working together, 
It's pretty boring and it doesn't go very far. The problem always seems to be, however, that with all these diverse types of people being brought into the community, with all these divergent gifts, all of us as individuals are tempted to think or want to believe that our particular gift or service is the most useful, is the most helpful, is the most important to the church, and we forget that it's only when they all work together that we even have this semblance of something called a faithful community. I like the way that Leonard Sweet tells the story of Sir Thomas Beecham, the founder of the London Philharmonic and, and the Beecham Opera Company. Apparently, Beecham was invited to uh, go to a nearby city to be the guest conductor. And during the first rehearsal with this particular orchestra, he quickly noticed that they just weren't that well-trained. They didn't watch him very well, and they didn't listen very well. And so as the rehearsal continued, he just got more and more frustrated. And finally, he had to stop the musicians for the third time in the exact same place in the score. And one of the musicians protested, and he said, Sir, just how is it that you want us to play? And Sir Thomas looked at him and calmly suggested, Together. I think Paul is trying to say the same thing to us, that the church has to play well together. The unity in Christ doesn't discount the, the graces and the gifts of each disciple any more that playing in an orchestra discounts the importance of the violin or the cello or the trumpet or the drums or the timpani. All the parts are so vital and important, but we have to play well together. So what does that look like? Well, whether you prefer rock and roll music or folk music or classical music, we have to give thanks for the fact that we have this amazing array of music that comes in to help us worship week after week after week. Whether you like missions being locally around the corner or far around the world, whether you think the money should be spent on those here in the community or those far away, we have to start giving thanks that we are in mission at all. Whether you like the sound of cooing babies in worship or find them a distraction, whether you dislike the fact that there are sometimes teenagers in the back row playing on their iPhones, or whether you find it annoying that hearing aids are going off in the middle of worship, we have to rejoice that God is calling all ages and stages and styles of people into worship at all. Whether you agree politically or theologically or practically with the people in the pew next to you, we have to remember that God has called each one here so that we learn from one another. And sometimes we're made to stretch and grow beyond our comfort zones. For better or worse, this is the wacky and wonderful way in which God has designed the church. And according to Paul, we have to start celebrating that. 
And the only way to do this is to continually remember who it is we serve. Who do you serve when you come to worship? Who do you serve when you walk out the door? A.W. Tozer put in his book, The Pursuit of God, he writes it this way. He says, has it ever occurred to you that a hundred pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically attuned to one another? They are of one accord by being tuned not to each other, but to a different standard to, to which each one must individually connect. So 100 worshipers meeting together, each one looking to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be if they were consciously trying to become unified and turn their eyes away from God. Our focus always has to be upon the one who calls us here. And that, I think, ultimately is our real Nora connection. The basis of everything else that we may or may not have in common is our devotion to God and being the body of Christ in the world. And that's true wherever you go in the world. You can walk into worship anywhere. You may not speak the language, you may not know the people, but the fact that you have this one God in common means that you are part of being the body of Christ everywhere. I think I learned this early in my career in a most unusual way. We were required in seminary to do um, field ed placements, and I happened to be on the East Coast. And so one year I did my internship in this funky little place called Trinity Presbyterian Church, centered right in Hell's Kitchen in Manhattan. It was a five-story walk-up, and it looked like every other building on this street with little coffee shops on one end and the tenements on the other end. And the sanctuary was on the first floor, and there were meeting rooms, and then apartments on the top for the pastor and a few others. It was one of those uh, poor sister churches in New York City. It was supported almost entirely from the mission monies of Fifth Avenue Presbyterian and other notable names. And, you know, it was one of those that was largely ignored. Um, didn't have much to offer in the way of traditional church programming or big worship services on any given Sunday. There might be 20, 25 people there. And from the recent statistics, I've heard it uh, doesn't seem like it's much different now than it was 20, 30 years ago. And the congregation at that time was made up of the most unique gathering of individuals I have ever encountered in my life. There was this beautiful middle-aged Pakistani nurse who had emigrated many years prior, but had absolutely no family there, and so the church became her family. There was this stunning businesswoman who was always at the church and was always in charge of any events, um, and always talked about her legendary husband, but nobody had ever met him. 
and her darling little seven-year-old daughter who, at the age of seven, already knew how to take up the collection in the sanctuary and was usually the only child in Sunday school. And then there was this young couple from West Virginia who were ostensibly the, the youth directors, but I think it was actually just a title that the pastor gave them in exchange for a place to stay because he gave them one of the apartments when he found them. They had moved from West Virginia to New York City to find their fame and fortune and were sleeping in their car, so he just kind of moved them in and made them the youth pastors. And then there was the motley bunch of teenagers who came down from the projects who hung around the church because we had a basketball court in the basement. And they were largely Hispanic and, you know, people of all kinds of different backgrounds. They were always hanging out, gossiping and swapping cigarettes and showing up for free church dinners. But I think it was mostly just a safe and warm place to get off the streets, which were pretty dangerous. And then there was June. Stick with me long enough, you'll hear me talk about June a lot. June was a 60-something homeless woman who had spent most of her life in a mental institution, but when they shut all the mental institutions, she ended up out on the street for about 10 years, and she had no place to go. And when she was on her meds, June was amazing because she had one of those eidetic memories where she could remember the date and the time and the people who were at any event, any time. She had this amazing memory, but when she wasn't on her meds, she'd stand up in the middle of worship and start yelling at you because you had blonde hair or she didn't like the color of the pews or whatever, and she would just go off and someone would kindly escort her out and get her a cup of coffee. And... You know, the pastor finally gave up on trying to kick June out because she would come in, especially in wintertime, and try to hide in one of the bathrooms or in one of the closets so that she had a safe and warm place to sleep at night. And the pastor would spend hours trying to find her and kick her out, and finally he just gave up and gave her a room. So June stayed there, too, and was kind of our mascot. And then there was a church organist who was this extremely talented, extremely overweight man who would sit at the organ behind the pastor and look over his shoulder at the red underlining on the pastor's notes as he preached so he knew how soon the sermon would be over. And then there was a pastor himself who smoked way too much and paced all the time when he was preaching or teaching, but he had room in his heart and in that church, for everyone and anyone who showed up. This funky little community was not what most of us would put on our visioning process. It was not what most of us will ever describe as a healthy church community. And yet it was exactly the church God intended it to be in that place at that time, it was an outpost to outcasts who found themselves welcomed and nurtured in faith, and it opened its doors to training future ministers, even me, <laughs> taking care of their neighbors, being the people of God in their own way, in their own time. And I don't know that they ever changed the world with their mission pledges or their programs, but they did receive the likes of me unquestioningly. 
and sat through my first ever most horrific, rambling, unimaginable sermon and still praised me kindly afterwards. And they encouraged every person who walked through there to live out their own calling as a person of God, loved and received and accepted. And they taught me about what it really means to be the church and what mostly matters, that we all learn to receive God's children without judgment and to celebrate what we have, not what's missing. And that the only way we get to do that is by acknowledging that we belong to God first and last and to serve God wherever we are called. Thanks be to God for these gifts to us and to the world. Amen.